This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance is doing the worm. What's up? Just to let you know, I'm not doing the worm for fun. I'm doing it out of respect in the spirit of the worm because we have rain coming up in the next few days and it's going to wash away all of that nasty frozen snow out there. It's the worm dance, folks. And today on Crawl Space, we are playing the clip from our Facebook and Twitter live show that we did on Martin Luther King Day on this past Monday, just a couple days ago, if you're listening to this on Drop Day, Lance. And in this episode, we have Chloe Cantor, our good friend, who is a sort of our in-house psych expert, if you will. She's got a psych degree, and uh, she's big time into this. We covered a lot of interesting topics. We did the Jamie Kloss recovery, her, her abduction and recovery, and we touched on... Brandon Lawson's disappearance, took some questions. It was fun. One thing that I want to mention off the bat, this morning, had this happened yesterday, we would have talked about this, but this morning we received a lot of people notifying us about this missing person in Boston. Her name is Olivia, Olivia Ambrose. She's 23 years old, 5'2", about 145, blue eyes, short, curly brown hair. She was last seen at the Hennessy's Bar just after 11 p.m., in the Faneuil Hall District of Boston on January 19th. And she left with an unidentified man. So if anybody has any information on this, look her up. Olivia, O-L-I-V-I-A, Ambrose, or Ambrosie, A-M-B-R-O-S-E. Or contact the Boston Police, 617-343-4500. So before we throw this audio, just understand that this was taken from our Facebook Live show, so it will sound a little bit different. It has a slightly different vibe than your typical Crawl Space episode. And if you've been a longtime listener of this show, uh, by the way, our two-year podversary is right around the corner, Lance, February 1st. February 1st. Yeah. But uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you will understand and probably recognize the different vibe there. We also talk a little bit about Suitcase Jane Doe, our last episode that we did on Crawl Space. And we really wanted to get Chloe's take on it because Chloe and Jennifer Amell, the filmmaker that we're working with in uh, this Suitcase Jane Doe case, 
and they spoke a little bit offline, and we wanted to hear what Chloe had to say about it. Okay, so we get into that as well, and just wanted to remind you to check out Stitcher Premium because, as, as I just said, our two-year podversary is rapidly approaching, Lance, but not all of the catalog of Crawl Space is on the Apple Podcasts or your favorite provider's feed. Well, where can I find this then? Stitcher Premium, and that's the only place right now, Lance. So check out stitcherpremium.com and subscribe. It's $4.99 a month. You will get a free month with code MMM. Stitcher Premium is a great product. They have countless comedy albums on there, which is a lot of fun, and True Crime Garage does a show on there. We also do our creator's commentary for Missing Maura Murray on Stitcher Premium. So if you are a big Missing Maura Murray fan, you will really enjoy those. And we have another show, Lance. What's the other show? Empty Frames. Empty Frames. That's our art show. We talk about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in season one. And season two is what I've been saying is a bridge season. We talk about other art heists. We talk about really significant moments in art history. We talk more with Turbo Paul Hendry. He comes on the show twice. He is the liaison between the criminal world and getting artwork back, a recovery process for many, many stolen artifacts, and he's such a trip to talk to and listen to. So Empty Frames is now encompasses all of art crime, and uh, it is a lot of fun. So definitely check that out once you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. Okay, so thanks for listening, everybody, and enjoy this live vault episode. everybody welcome to crawl space live vault today here on january 21st 2019 we are live on facebook and on twitter and i am tim Polari here in the crawl space studios in wormtown here with lance reen and chloe Cantor. what's going on Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. <laughs> Nothing at all. Just doing a live show. <laughs> good uh, Good riffing until we were all settled into our seats. <laughs> Chloe, how are you today? I am doing great. So happy to be back in the studio to be talking about a number of topics today. What are we talking about today? Yeah, we got a lot of topics today. We are going to talk about Suitcase Jane Doe a little bit, which was our last episode of Crawl Space. And we want to get Chloe's take on that. And we're working with uh, an interesting uh, person named Jen Amell, who is a filmmaker out of Pennsylvania. And she has been diving into the case of Suitcase Jane Doe. And uh, we'll get into that in a few minutes. We also want to talk about the Brandon Lawson disappearance a little bit. And we did an episode about Brandon Lawson's disappearance a couple of months ago now. And there is some follow-up that we wanted to do. And we wanted to read some comments from the YouTube video uh, to hear what people think of that. Let's see. And then we're going to talk about Jamie Kloss a little bit and uh, her disappearance and the murder of her parents and uh, how she resurfaced and really the whole case of Jake Patterson, that son of a bitch who was arrested for kidnapping and murder. And uh, just want to say hi to our communities out there. How's it going, Mary? In the Facebook uh, chat room, Haley is there and Jason Watts and Astrid as well. How's it going? Please feel free to chime in with some comments. We will read them. Twitter may be a little more uh, difficult to stay. We're still trying to figure out the Twitter part of this yeah, whole thing. We're still troubleshooting uh, the Twitter aspect of the live vault, but uh, we'll get there eventually. At least we have an angle. At least What's we up, have Twitter? an angle. Yep. What's up, Twitter? You're up there. 
Wormtown is uh, sub-zero uh, temperatures today. It's cold. It's really cold out yep. there. And uh, I think Lance had a message for I just drivers. Want a, a really quick message. Uh, on the way in today, listen, people, if you have a truck, if you have a pickup truck, if you have anything bigger than a car, even if you have a car and you're driving, it is your responsibility to please clean off your car. I don't feel like I should be dodging frozen sheets of ice coming at my car as well as other cars trying to do the same bit of dodging. If you have a semi, for God's sake, clean the top of your semi off. <laughs> it's it, it, They're coming off at, at like like 20 by 20 foot squares, smashing to the ground. It's dangerous, especially when the weather is as cold as it is, because this is just, just straight up ice. It's not like it's snow and it's going to just this break apart. This is frozen apart. snow. This is this, is this smash into you. At the very least, it's just it's it's super dangerous for you to be dodging this. Yeah, this is uh, tap dance on a lake kind of weather out there in Wormtown yeah. today. I could been I could have been a little fired up when I came in today because I cleaned <laughs> off my car after it had been plowed in. It's that awful ice snow that you got to like chisel through. My car was barely recognizable. It looked like a snowbank, and I have like one and a half arms, and it's winds blowing, and it's like negative 17 degrees with the windshield factor and then you get out on the highway and it's like do i need to do this now do i need to dodge this goddamn sheet of ice all right i'm done <laughs> no okay. one else clean off your cars yeah, guys yeah when you put in all that work and no one else does it's a little frustrating i understand i don't need you placating <laughs> to me <laughs> sorry don't storm off <laughs> sorry so uh so let's see. Let, let's talk about uh, Chloe's blog real quick. And uh, Chloe, wh- what is going on with your blog? And what is the URL to that blog? If anyone wants to check it out, it's Chloe, which is spelled C-H-L-O-E from crawlspace.blogspot.com. I am mainly covering the disappearance of Brianna Maitland, which is what I have been primarily covering when I appear on this show. I figured some people prefer... Well, if you're listening to podcasts, you don't necessarily prefer reading to listening, but some people like that supplement. There are things that I have worked on in interviews that I've done that haven't been on the show that you can read so you can glean some new information. My latest post was a Q&A, which I sort of opened up to the online community with Brianna's dad, Bruce Maitland, sort of going directly to the source. You know, he's the family spokesperson. He's the one that's working directly with the Vermont State Police, so he was really able to answer some common questions that people have. I am updating it every week or every other week as much as I can, and the goal of it is to really just keep people engaged and informed in a case that is so rooted in rumor and conjecture. And Chloe's new podcast is coming soon. Hopefully we can get it up and running by the end of January, but there's a little more work that needs to happen. But it's going to be great. It's called True Crime Twins, and uh, the first episode is almost done. Second episode you recorded, Chloe? Yes. Um, I don't know if I should go into which cases sure, we're doing. Sure, tell us sure. a little bit about it. Um, yeah. So episode one, we will be covering the unsolved murder of 19-year-old college student Faith Hedgepeth. You might have come across the case if you watch a lot of forensic shows. It happened in 2012, and despite DNA evidence left behind, a handwritten note and potentially even a voice recording, the case remains unsolved. Um, The DNA that was left behind has been submitted for comparison to over 800 people with no match, and it was actually just submitted to GEDmatch in hopes of finding something new out of there. It's a fascinating case. Uh, Case two will be the 
disappearance of Alyssa Turney with Sarah Turney as our guest. Alyssa was 17 when she went missing in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, that case remains unsolved. Sarah has been this completely inspiring advocate. I'm sure you've come across her, and if you haven't, um, her handle is usually justice for Alyssa. Case number three, we haven't recorded yet, but I'm very excited about it. I've had a relationship with um, a woman named Jenny Carrieri. She is the twin sister of murder victim Jenny LaCornu, and that's another unsolved case. And that one really has not received any attention, even though it really deserves it. There was a witness. There is a description of a suspect and his vehicle, and it's still unsolved. So there's just a lot to unpack. We're really excited about it. And I think that we can come at it from a perspective that you're not really used to. So um, I think that's what we're bringing to the table. And uh, in, the, in the third case, you talked about uh, the, the guest that you're going to have on, her sister was her twin sister, right? Yes. Is that? Okay. And that's just like you and Melina, your co-host. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm excited for everyone to hear Melina's voice as well. Um, Astrid just left a really nice comment talking about um, my my background in the field of mental health. And she actually has that too. She currently works at a psych hospital. So that is just a, a very relevant element in almost all of these cases coming from the victim to the perpetrator. So we can really bring Watt to the table in that sense. And with uh, Jody LaCornu's case, I feel like that's why I connected with Jenny so early on. She actually reached out to us in the early production phases of Crawl Space. And her story is just is just heart-wrenching. And you'll see how much she has done and how much she has fought to try to get justice for her, uh, for her beloved twin. And um, the more attention it can get, the better. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Suitcase Jane Doe. And if you're unfamiliar with this case, we did our last episode. The, la- the very last episode of Crawl Space was called Suitcase Jane Doe, and it was it was on this uh, unfortunate murder victim who is not identified. This is a case that started in 1995 in July. Just a quick recap. It takes place in Downingtown in Westchester, Pennsylvania, an area called Valley Creek. The twin tunnels, which are actually three tunnels, so these uh, stone tunnels that go underneath a overpass for a railroad. A local fisherman was culling the area, and he found a suitcase. And inside the suitcase, wrapped up in a tar- uh, in a blanket, in a garment bag, and it was duct taped and wired shut, uh, was a uh, the torso of a woman who is said to be either of Hispanic or Eastern European descent. And her head was also found on that torso. Is that accurate? Her head and probably her hands, but that's only that's only brought together because they had fingerprints taken from uh, from the torso. So we can assume that one hand was there. Uh, about six months later, in January, her legs were found at a walking slash running park about um, I think it's fifty or sixty, or 60 miles. miles down from um, the first location. And yeah. a jogger found that in January, also in Pennsylvania. So we have Jen Amell, Jennifer Amell, who's a journalist, a writer, a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, an actress. She reached out to us. She has a website called suitcasejanedoe.com, and she just joined Twitter. So that's very exciting. That's right. So her uh, Twitter handle is at Amell, A-M-E-L-L underscore Jen J-E-N-N. So follow her and you'll get updates on Suitcase Jane Doe. And we will be having more interviews and episodes with her. She's going to act as our boots on the ground location person in Pennsylvania. She's talked to a lot of people, including law enforcement, journalists who cover the case at the time, and people who are close to the scene, like the uh, the guy who the fisherman 
his right. friend, one of his best friends. So this is one of those sort of mysteries that we tend to get involved in, which is it's not very straightforward. You look at somebody who's involved in it, and it peels back to another layer of mystery. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. It's a, it's, it's a pretty fascinating case. And to Astrid's point here about Chloe's expertise in psychology, I am uh, desperate to hear Chloe's take on this case. There isn't much that we know. I think that Jen has done such an amazing job at putting together what is known. So I definitely recommend everyone go on her website that we just linked or verbally linked to because that's where you're going to get all the definitive information. One of the things that we do know is that the fishermen who discovered her body seemed to be quite motivated in the the suitcase that she was found in was wrapped in a garbage bag and in wires and in tape and he really picked it apart and took everything apart to get to it. And something that Jen and I had discussed when we spoke on the phone a few days ago is at at a certain point after a few weeks, uh, there must have been an overwhelming smell of human decomposition. So if you're thinking, oh, maybe he's looking for money, he, he had to have smelled something really vile. And you have to consider the level of motivation there. And that's something that I don't think really sits quite well with any of us. And I don't want to point fingers, especially because there's so little that we know. But an interesting factor is the idea that this area where the suitcase was found was something that was an area that was very well known to the locals. And perhaps if someone was out of town, they would have thought that that was a discreet location. But if it was a local, it was the intention of putting someone there, they would have known that it would have been easily found. So either it's kind of hard to to make an make a guess about what someone's intentions were but it's possible that the person was intentional in having her found and then you have kind of have to ask why and then why is this fisherman so motivated in opening this suitcase and to add to the mystery the fisherman has sort of gone off the grid so we're still looking for him not officially a suspect that, or anything like that that we know of um but yeah i think you raised some interesting questions there chloe like wouldn't there be a smell and especially if you're finding this in the in the dead summer. Like, at what point do you stop because you think that there's money in the suitcase? Because it looks like it's very concealed. Yeah. So there's probably something in there of value or something disturbing. At what point do you stop and you're like, this doesn't smell like money? It smells like a decomposing body. That's a pretty distinct smell, even if you haven't smelled it before. But I would imagine as a fisherman, he's smelled other things that have been dying and decomposing. That's a good point. I mean, who knows? You're out there in the in the elements. In yeah, the maybe the lake smells. Yeah, I, he, I believe he worked for the for the local hatchery. Okay. So he's dealing with fish dying all the time. I'm not comparing a body smelling like dead fish, but you can smell the smell of death. But I think the question's valid. Uh, why? Why open the? Why go through the length of opening the entire suitcase? The the rib or is it the the wire? The wire picking apart wire and tape. It's like I said, it's very motivated. And who knows? Maybe there's things that we don't know. What if he didn't have a sense of smell? Right. Like there are things like and like you said. At which point do you take a step back and think, okay, there's I should no money in here. There's no money in here, and maybe I should contact the appropriate authorities. When the the legs of the body were found six months later in a separate location, and um, you know the people came across that, and they didn't investigate at all. They immediately called the police. So it's just kind of unpacking the different reactions to things is interesting, and also just trying to understand the motivation in the choice of location as well. 
Astrid here on Facebook says, Devil's Advocate, why couldn't the spell, the smell be motivating in an OMG, a body is in there kind of way? Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. I think that's kind of what I was getting at in a roundabout way, which is at what point do you say this isn't money, this is something else, this is something that's dying? And maybe he did continue because he wanted to do the right thing. Curiosity, maybe. Morbid even. curiosity, yeah. but in, in a well-intended way, he destroyed evidence. Yeah. So, you know. I guess just not knowing, not having the sort of wherewithal to know that you're, if it's not money, it smells like death, you should probably stop and call the cops. I can see that someone thought it was money. Oh, sure. Chloe, do you think this perpetrator, the the killer of Suitcase Jane Doe, is this someone who has acted before or since? We talk about the, the method in which the legs were removed. Um, it's kind of makes you want to throw up it's really disturbing but you know picking apart the soft tissue with a small blade um unless it was a hunter or something like that that was experienced in that way it's hard to imagine that this person hadn't engaged in such violent acts before or since that's that's another thing um what has this person done since the suitcase jane doe I just want to interject here. We got the Twitter feed going. Great. I wasn't sure if we were actually getting comments, but we're now getting comments. Oh, wonderful. I I think it's a little jumpy. Some people are saying that's a little jumpy, but I think that's just the Twitter thing. Okay. Um, So welcome, everybody. Nama. uh, Chris Duet is there from what I see. So let's get into uh, Brandon Lawson's disappearance and talk about that. And we did an episode about Brandon Lawson's disappearance that was published on November 7th, twenty. 18 so you can check that out if you'd like we have a bunch of comments on youtube that we'd like to go over too but before we do uh chloe had some correspondence with brandon's brother kyle do you uh you want to go over that correspondence real quick sure so kyle lawson is an important person in this case because he was corresponding with brandon throughout that evening he wasn't aware that brandon had called the police asking for help himself i think because Brandon had an active warrant out for his arrest for a, a nonviolent drug offense. He was assuming that he did not want contact with the police. However, he and his then partner, Audrey, were receiving disjointed and intermittent phone calls from Brandon with comments including, I'm bleeding, I'm being chased. And um, a recent article quoted Kyle as saying, Brandon at once at one point said to him, I'm being chased by Mexicans. To which Kyle responded, are you tripping? So he's he was out there that night looking for his brother. And I think this disappearance has haunted him to this day. So we figured he would be a really valuable person to interview, especially when he's being quoted by other sources, one of which was a quote we'd only heard from that source. So I got into contact with Kyle. He was very willing to talk to us. We actually have an interview planned for uh, either late February or early March. I think his input will be really important. But yeah, it was great to sort of just exchange some letters with him. One of the things that he said was that Kyle was my best friend and my role model. So it's just, um, it's it's a heartbreaking it's situation. It's very heartbreaking that, that his brother Brandon was. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so over here on YouTube, we got some comments. And uh, you mentioned uh, Mexicans are after me. Uh, so w- one of these comments here on YouTube from John says, if he said, quote, the Mexicans are after me, end quote, maybe they actually were after him. Why would that have to be a delusion? He has an LOL. Yes, and this got 19 upvotes. So it actually, I think, is our top comment on the video. And someone followed up, 
Uh, I came here to say the exact same thing. Mexicans are not a figment of the imagination. You can be for real, be chased by another human being. I was a little taken aback why Chloe said that. I'm sure she has her reasons why and it probably came out wrong, but it doesn't point to him being delusional. We border Mexico. It's not strange. So that was something that we had talked about. You know, we're up here in Massachusetts and we don't border Mexico. So we it's it might come off as a little bit more strange to us. But the reason why I thought that it came off as a little bit delusional was because his own brother, in response to hearing that, asked him if he was tripping. So it kind of does seem like a statement where you're you're having delusions of persecution when the person that's hearing it doesn't even think that it's for real. Although the are you tripping comment might not have anything to do with being drug related. Could just be like, bro, you tripping? That's an expression. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying he Either thought way, that he yeah. was. Yeah, but he he's, his brother was almost incredulous to hear that, yeah. thinking it didn't really make any sense. And uh, Kim here says it is important to point out the sheriff's wife owns the local newspaper. She has reported stuff about Brandon that is not true or has said things creating innuendos that makes Brandon look bad. The fact that cops didn't respond like they should have, they uh, will not go search like they should have. Uh, what do you guys think about that one? That's true. I, I've heard that from Jason. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I don't think it was this exact article that we're talking about, but there was a, another article that the sheriff's wife had actually written that was, that had a pretty negative tone towards Brandon. And um, I'm pretty sure the headline was uh, Sheriff Brandon Lawson is no longer in the county. Um, so that, that's kind of, that raises a red flag right away because it's like, we, we don't know where he is. So how do you know he's not in the county? It just, it seems a little bit odd and perhaps a, a biased source. And, uh, here's someone named Barb's on YouTube says that boars, because we talked about boar, wild boar in Brandon's case. And we, we put it out there as a possibility that he was maybe attacked by wild boar. And I don't think we, we definitely never said that this was something that happened to Brandon or that even we believe this happened to him. But I think that it is interesting that there are boar in that area who can attack people. And so some people were commenting on it here. Barb said, boars are known to live deep in the woods, not a half mile from the road. I've never known anyone to hit a boar on the road like we do deer. And then our friend Jason, who was on the episode with us, replied, believe it or not, there have been instances where boar have been hit by cars. As a matter of fact, when I left Bronte the first time, I saw a dead one on the side of the road. But it's not very common for that to happen. As you said, they don't typically hang out near a roadway. They like to stay in cover. Uh, Jason also said that there was a report of a boar hitting a pickup truck. Um, he messaged me uh, about that. So it's not really something he's experienced firsthand, he said, but uh, it is something that happens. Yeah, again, we're not saying that this is our conclusion right. we're saying that this is a very real possibility when you're equaling out all of the factors that go into this yeah and i think it's just um, talking about the different wildlife or the wildlife that could potentially harm humans these kind of cases draw interest from all around the country and all around the world so it's very interesting to sort of dig deeper because that was something that we didn't fully understand being from new england the risk of predatory wild boars towards people. So um, I think it's a really important point of discussion in hearing from the locals in that. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded, and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson, and look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Someone said he's not under the influence. He's stressed, scared, and running. It's that simple. Fight or flight. Shock makes people uh, not make sense, too. So any other thoughts on Brandon Lawson's disappearance? Well, there's a comment there from Kim saying, what about the gunshots that people heard? Yeah. In the call, in the 911 call. And if you're listening for gunshots, you're going to hear gunshots. If you're if you're considering the situation that he was in and his cell phone could have hit his hand, his pants, anything, you know, the, these these uh, probably were not gunshots. They, they certainly didn't sound like gunshots to us. I think what is obvious is something that Jason had to- told us when we had him on, which is the only thing you can really hear that you know is something that is happening is him talking on the phone and looking from side to side because you hear his voice go in and out in that side to side, not having the phone in front of his face way. Right. And here is someone, Aristad in Minnesota says, you need to consider the fact that police are involved. There's no other explanation. I lose respect for investigative podcasts that should, but won't center on that. It is the white elephant in the room. I agree that we should definitely consider the facts and focus on facts, but I don't know how on earth someone could jump and say that's a fact. I think when you're pointing the finger at police, you better have facts and you better have some sort of proof, and we have none. And Jason actually responded to that comment saying, the sheriff himself could not have been involved. He was not in town the night Brandon was missing. 
we have we have nothing to go off of yeah. with that. So, yeah, I'm. How could how could we say that's a fact? Yeah, and also the wording here. You need to consider the fact that police are involved. We considered it. We considered we the can, idea that I they mean, were involved. You have to look at everything, and we considered the fact that Boers might have been involved, and yeah. we're considering the fact that Mexican drug runners might have been involved based on what Kyle had said. Right. So, yeah, we consider all the facts. Yeah. But to then say there's no other explanation is a little bit irresponsible on, on, on her end. It's a really common attitude I've noticed amongst uh the online community in all of the cases that I've sort of chipped in on uh, with the show. A lot of people really like the police conspiracy angle. I, I see it all the time. And I think when things don't make sense, it's like, oh, well, that explains why things don't make sense. And that explains why things aren't solved. But like I said, we there, there's no factual basis to that at this point. Okay, so uh, do you want to pivot now to talking about Jamie Kloss and uh, her disappearance and resurfacing, which has been a pretty major story in in news outlets uh, over the past few weeks. Of course, Jamie Kloss was uh, taken from her home in a home invasion where this uh, this guy named Jake Patterson, who was 21, he just saw Jamie getting on a bus and decided, quote, that's the girl he was going to take. And that's a quote that he told police. Yes. And so he went back to this house three times, and on the third time was somewhere around midnight a few months ago, three about three months ago. And he went in with a gun, with a shotgun, shot her dad, and hunted uh, for Jamie and her and her mom, Denise, and ended up finding them in, in the bathroom, in the tub. After he broke down the door, broke down the door with 15 to 20 blows against the door with his over 200-pound body. And I can't even imagine the terror that Jamie and her mom had when they were in the bathtub holding on to each other. And they're hearing the door smashing down after they heard a gunshot, knowing that uh, her father and her husband, were he was probably gone. He was probably murdered. This was something that was so well orchestrated in, in the beginning, but clearly somebody, clearly somebody with severe emotional, mental problems. And although it was premeditated, right down to shaving all of the body hair, like shaving his head and and making sure his face was shaven so that he didn't leave any any hair follicles on on the scene. Wearing gloves. Wearing gloves, wearing one of those masks that is like a ski mask, the balaclava mask, um, which should be banned. I mean, maybe I'm being too alarmist on this, but (laughs) there's only two reasons why you buy that, and one of them is to conceal your face. Anyway... It's it. I can't. I can't even wrap my head around the brutality that this random act inflicted on on this poor young girl. It's horrifying to to see that the steps this guy took, and then he kept her under his bed in his bedroom uh, for about eighty seven days until she escaped herself. So, Chloe, wh- how do you feel about this? The the mentality that this guy has, or or the the psychology behind this guy, Jake Patterson. And and being as premeditative, premeditative as he was, it's it's scary. It was very well planned. I I don't think he quite had a plan for or a very good plan for once he had Jamie, because like we just said, he was keeping her under his bed with hampers and storage things with weights. He witnessed her getting on a school bus just one time. And that was enough for him to decide that was his girl. So we see someone 
who is incredibly motivated, incredibly obsessive, and just seeing someone one time motivated him enough to completely possess her as a human being and take down anyone that would either witness it or get in his way. I think we see someone with major control issues, someone with poor anger management, and we see his anger management issues based on what Jamie described throughout her ordeal and the way that he tormented her throughout. We still haven't had much detail about what she went through, and I think that is probably out of sensitivity to Jamie and to her healing. I know a lot of people will jump out and say, oh, he's he's mentally ill, he's not right in the head, and I think that's correct to to do something like that and to require so much control and possession over another person. There's something very wrong with him, but there is nothing that I have seen so far that negates any responsibility from him. This was uh, a premeditated and intentional act, and there is nothing that takes away from his criminal responsibility. And the uh, Weekend Warrior joined here on Twitter with uh, the first real comment. Um, he even removed the emergen- emergency trunk release handle from the trunk. So he knew that he was putting her in the car. He snipped a wire that was going to prevent her from uh, escaping from the trunk. So yet another bit of premeditation. Terrifying. I mean, I mean, this guy's well aware of the steps to have gone through. To I mean, he got away for, with it for three months. There was no impairment in his executive functioning or his ability to plan and execute something successfully. So there is nothing. There's no issues there. What we're seeing is issues with um, his own sense of control and his impulse control and potentially, I mean, we don't know what happened to her, but uh, a fixation on a child is also never good yeah i mean we kind of we we say here that if, if someone a murderer we were to listen uh to to a podcast were to consume a lot of this true crime media stuff they would have a a better idea of how to get away with something like this it makes me wonder if this guy consumed a lot of these things because he was ahead of the curve on a lot of these things most killers we find out are not consuming things like what we're talking about right now most of them operate a lot on luck yeah they're totally. just they're just very aware of how lucky they they got. But this guy starting with picking someone random, at least aware of of any sort of uh, follow up. Yeah, like no connection to her, so that's a pretty good start. That's a it's a very good start. Most cases go unsolved because there's no connection between perpetrator and victim. That's obviously the first um, investigative path to take is trying to find some sort of connection, and there was none. I think. He actually, there, there is an article, and I'm considering the source radar online, but he, if you look, you don't really see that much of a social media presence for Jake Patterson, but there have been recent reports that he actually closely monitored the discussion groups on Facebook. I was actually a part of one um, where people would discuss. So this whole time when everyone's discussing leads and what they think might have happened, he's closely looking and he's Googling you know, Jamie Kloss, Jamie Kloss Barron, Jamie Kloss Gordon, where he lived, just to see. And he also Googled the person that was caught in her home stealing underwear. And obviously we know that he had nothing to do with it. Um, people, I, I'm noticing there's still some online chatter of uh, uh, potentially Jamie knowing him or being involved in the act. And that's something that people were kind of speculating about early on. Uh, the police went through all of her phone activity and his and found no connection. Neither of them owned up to that. So I, I kind of feel like those those you know conversation points can be put to rest. If there were, they would have 
found him really quickly. I want to give a quick shout out, shout out to the two people who helped bring Jamie back to law enforcement and back to her family, which is uh, the woman who found her, Janine Nutter, who took her in, and Kristen Kaczynskis, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But these are the two women who identified that there was a problem before they even knew that this was Jamie. Um, Janine Nutter was walking her dog and saw Jamie and had a quick conversation with her before realizing that she had to get her somewhere safe. And once they found out who she was, they realized that the person she escaped from would probably come looking for her. So they, they sort of, I don't want to say they, they like mobilized, but they sort of mobilized in case that happened. Well, yeah, uh, her husband was, was standing, standing by the door with a, with a weapon. Yeah. With a gun uh, re- ready. And, and, for the record, they were right to be that afraid because Jake Patterson, when he... He did go out and he, look for her. He went home and realized Jamie was not under his bed. He searched his house, found out that she was not in the house, got back into the Taurus, and drove around looking for her. And you know, and also the fact that he had shot her father through the door. So Jamie woke up that night because her little dog was barking, and she woke her parents, and the father goes to the door and investigates probably half asleep, not entirely sure exactly what's going on. He hears get on the ground, thinks it might be a police officer, asks for a badge, and he ends up getting shot through a door. So knowing knowing those details, I would be pretty terrified uh, being in that house waiting for a law enforcement response, knowing what this ruthless person is capable of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nama here has a comment. Yikes, what do you make of that fixation on a child, Chloe? Sorry if I missed it. It's yeah. a it's a crazy... It, it's a good question because yeah. Jamie was 13 and J- uh, Jake Patterson was 21. So that's a pretty considerable age difference there. She is a child, basically. Right, so what was his long-term plan with this? We don't know. It, it, and that's kind of what's scary to think about is how much longer was this going to go on? How much longer did he intend to keep her alive and investigators, prosecutors at this point, they're not really speaking to a motive. And I think that's probably out of sensitivity to the victim. But the desire to overcome and control a child, we don't know if for sure if he was a pedophile or if the motive was sexual. But this is someone that is so in need of control that rather than, I don't like to say pick on someone your own size, but it's a lot easier to control and handle a child than it is an adult. From Haley on Facebook, she says, I'm from that part of Wisconsin, and this was insane. The sort of thing doesn't happen here. Uh, the whole community was scared and hopeful that she would be found. My, my Facebook feed was all about it for a while. And uh, we were talking about it before we started here, and it is kind of a miracle that she's alive and actually was able to escape and really solve this case herself. But... I mean, what are the chances that she was alive? I mean, I, I don't think any of us thought that that was the case. I mean, the longer it goes on, the more right. you think, okay, well, this isn't going to end well if if it's if she's ever found. Did Patterson go into some plan about trying to kill her? Or I mean, as we just talked about, like, like what was his plan? Yeah, there was no for like it was she wasn't going to exist under his bed for. 30 years. It's not I, like he dug a bunker for her. Right, right. So he either he was waiting to get caught or he was going to kill her at some point and do this again. Or waiting for her to fall in love with him. He could have had some sort of delusion that over time it would have worked out. Someone made the observation, Jake has a brother, Eric, that actually has a, a sex offense conviction. When he was 18, he went across state lines to meet and have sex with a 15-year-old. 
and his current girlfriend is like the spitting image of Jamie. So that's just a, a little odd, but it really it seems like he really had no long term plan, and that makes me think maybe he had some sort of delusion that this was going to work out for him and he was going to have himself a little wife or girlfriend. Guy's got a five million dollar bail on him right now. Right. How does he have bail, but John Juca doesn't have bail? Hey, great question. That is a great question. That drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe certain prosecutors can tell us why. Yeah. Uh, so Patterson is facing. Two charges of intentional homicide along with kidnapping and armed burglary counts. And he did confess to the to the case, right? Right to away. The, as, yeah. soon as, he, as soon as he got pulled over, he said, I did it. Yeah. And just went into heavy detail. Um, he even said that the his choice of weapon, which was that shotgun, he knew that it was one of the most commonly owned gun in the state. So he knew that it would be even more difficult for them to track it down. He was not stupid. And... When he was leaving the Kloss residence with Jamie in his trunk, he actually pulled over for the vehicles, the uh, emergency vehicles that were on the way to the Kloss household. While she's in the trunk. The police got there within four minutes of the 911 call, uh, which came from Denise Kloss, Jamie's mother's phone, while the two were hiding, sitting in the bathtub behind the shower curtain. According to Jake, he went in and told Denise to hang up the phone. And six and four minutes later, the police are there and they're able to surmise from the scene that Jamie was still alive. And they're thinking now he had mentioned that he nearly slipped in James Kloss's blood in the doorway as they're leaving. And he had Jamie tied up, dragging her down the room. So they were actually probably able to see drag marks from Jamie. That's probably how they were able to figure out that she was still out there and that she was not a suspect in the case, because that's another thing they said almost immediately, that they did not consider Jamie Kloss a suspect in the murder of her parents. Now, what is the plan for Jamie? What, what as, as a professional, what is the plan for someone who has seen this happen firsthand, saw her mother get shot in the head with a shotgun at point-blank range, was taken and put underneath a two-and-a-half-foot space under a twin bed, and then had to escape on her own? Where does someone like that go? She has... A lot of trauma to work through. I'm. I was overjoyed to see they actually released a lot of pictures of her with her surviving family members, who all seem just so loving and so supportive and just doting on her. So while she has these uh, risk factors, which are the trauma and seeing all and experiencing all these horrible things, she also has quite a bit of protective factors, which is the family to come home to. As a 13-year-old, children are quite resilient and they can kind of bounce back from things. It's going to be a process. She's going to need to talk to someone down the road. She's going to probably need some therapy. But what a therapist would recommend, and I think is what the family's doing, is to sort of let her come to them, not prying out details of what she went through, not needing to know every single thing she went through, but sort of letting her process giving her some space on her own to process and sort of come to them when she's ready empower her because remember this is 88 days of her having completely no power no power being completely helpless so right now they just need to focus on loving supporting and empowering jamie and so the whole incident in the Kloss household where patterson uh started by banging on the door and ended by uh, dragging jamie out only lasted about four minutes so just to put that in some perspective, I mean, her whole life changed in the matter of four minutes. She was asleep. Four minutes later, she's being dragged out. Her parents are dead. 
and she is now living with someone against her will. And urinated out of fear. And imagine, you know, being in the trunk of that car, uh, hearing the emergency sirens, probably feeling him, you know, because he he pulls over the car to get out of their way. Maybe even having a, a slight feeling of hope that this is it, that she's going to be rescued, only to be in the car for another two hours and then be subjected to 88 days of captivity. And you mentioned, you know, there's a level of of planning and intelligence, and there's also an element of luck. And the fact that that Taurus, that maroon Taurus, didn't become a vehicle of interest, even though it was driving away from the direction of, of the crime, and it, he wasn't pulled over or searched, that was his element of luck there, where maybe he could have been apprehended, Jamie could have been rescued sooner, but it didn't happen that way. And when law enforcement did release information of potential vehicles of interest, that was not one of them, even though they noted that vehicle in their notes that were later um, that later came out. That's a tough one. That's a tough one to uh, to swallow. Jamie here in the chat room says, don't most killers make mistakes and learn as they go? I'd say so. I, and I guess the answer is if you're lucky enough to get away with it, yeah, you'd probably you know improve. What? Not do the next time. Right. Mojo Susan on Twitter says, there was a case I saw a doc of called The Girl in the Box about Colleen Stan, who was held captive under a bed like Jamie. I have not heard of this. I've not seen it. No. Have you? Uh, a Girl in a Box? We'll check that out. Thanks for the, uh, thanks for that. Oh. Ast- Hi, Mistress Pris. Astrid here in the chat room says, we had a case like that in a German town. It was a boy who was taken by mistake since he had long hair. He was kept for 30 days, and sadly he is still struggling at 40. Yeah, those things don't just leave you. Yeah. You know, you, you intervention is really important once once you're at that point where you're ready. Um, you can actually, there are some incredibly resilient and strong survivors that were subject to really high profile cases that have kind of come out and made statements of support for Jamie, uh, including Elizabeth Smart, J.C. Dugard. In the past, uh, Sean Hornbeck, too, has spoken out in support. Uh, I think he came out and made a statement when Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus, and Michelle Knight were rescued. And it's all very, uh, a very similar theme. It's just uh, let them feel empowered, let them come to terms with it when they're ready, and just give them the help and support that they need. Because like that comment reflects, if, if the right things aren't done, it can be really hard to move past such trauma. What's your uh, opinion on the sentence? What should happen to him? Throw the book at him, throw away the key. You want to keep him locked up forever? Hypothetical, I, I know. Like, I guess that's a different question, uh, different sort of, but... Uh, Let's get a little political there. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know. It's I, not a, it's, I, I don't, I'm not trying to get political. I'm not sure that I really believe in putting someone to death. I understand all the, uh, the oh, it costs more money to keep them alive and, and all that kind of thing. And what if they break out, they do it again. That is kind of where you'd get me on the argument. If this person is deemed to definitely be a high probability reoffender, like Ted Bundy or this son of a bitch, Patterson, I would have no problem with them getting put to death. I, I agree exactly with what you said. One of the first things that I looked up when everything unfolded was, does Wisconsin have the death penalty? And it doesn't. Wisconsin was actually one of the first states in the United States that abolished the death penalty. So that's not even that's not even on the table here. I, but the maximum punishment is what he deserves uh, for his for his heinous, cruel and premeditated crimes. I have a hypothetical scenario. What if we took John Juca out of Rikers, freed up a spot and tossed this guy in there? I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I would. Yeah. He'd get <laughs> okay. killed within a week, I would bet. 
people who do this to children don't really survive that long in prison. Yeah, this guy's yeah, not so going to last. Where the, where the heck is Jake Patterson right now? Is he some, I'm sure he's somewhere much more comfortable than Rikers. He was in the Barron County Jail at first, but one of Jamie Kloss's family members worked there. So it wasn't. So I think it was a conflict of interest issue. So now he's elsewhere. He confessed. Has he been sentenced? No. Okay. Um. He, I don't. I, I know that he's pleaded not guilty. Oh, he did. Despite despite the confession. So unless he changes that plea, and I think in most in most cases like this, it makes sense to first plead not guilty so your lawyers can review the case and see what they can do for you rather than immediately go with pleading guilty and working on negotiating a punishment but with his extremely detailed confession that was almost smug like he he almost see i saw it as an opportunity for him to brag about how much thought and effort he had put into this and how he basically could have gotten away with it if if jamie wasn't such a and this isn't his words is my words uh such a such an amazing, strong, and brave person. Right. Yeah, he was trying to control every single element, including his confession. Right. Yeah, it says here uh, on the, in this great uh, article from CNN about it, it says, in the basement fireplace, he burned her clothes and duct tape and his gloves that he used during the murders. He put uh, Jamie in his sister's pajamas. And she lived essentially under his twin-size bed. He shut her in with bags, laundry bins, and barbells when visitors arrived or when he left the house. That's uh, an interesting statement, and it might be a good segue into Mistress Pris's comment on Twitter. She says, I'm curious about the psychopathy that led to this. Gary Ridgway, for example, was molded by his crazy-ass mother. So what do, what, what do you make of that, Chloe? We don't really know that much about his parents. I, they've, there have been a few articles where his mom's uh, terrified to leave the house and the father was weeping at his son's court date and wrote a note uh, to the Kloss family and was quoted as saying, I don't care about anything except for Jamie's family. And Jamie's family said, well, we haven't received a note and I don't really think we're interested in hearing from him. We don't know what Jake Patterson's childhood was like and what could have happened to him that led him to be this obsessive, controlling piece of garbage. But the fact, something I can't really let go of is that his brother is a convicted uh, statutory rapist. So they grew up in the same household. They have the same, or 50% of the same DNA. So you have to wonder if something happened in their house that gave them some sort of um, skewed perception on what's appropriate in a relationship and what's appropriate to expect in love and in sex and, and things like that. But it's it's hard to it's hard to speculate when I know nothing about his upbringing and nothing about his parents. So it said when his father came on Saturdays, Jake would turn up the, the bedroom radio to muffle Jamie's movements from under the bed. And he said he kept her in line by yelling and hitting the walls, especially the two times he noticed that she had tried to get out from under the bed. And he repeatedly warned her that bad things would happen to her if she tried to come out. And Jamie said that Patterson struck her really hard on the back during one outburst. Sometimes she stayed under the bed for as long as 12 hours with no food, water, or access to a bathroom. I, When I think about, you know, his father owned the cabin. And I think maybe a week or so after Jamie was abducted, he transferred the ownership of the cabin to someplace else. I don't know if it was a bank or something. And so whenever the dad's home, that's crazy to think that people are visiting the home while she's there, you know, whose house is this? I feel like 
if if I were a parent and I'm visiting my home and every time I'm there, there's blasting music in an unoccupied room, you'd think you would go in there and investigate. You think about all the opportunities that people had to rescue this girl. And it's just baffling to try to grapple why it didn't happen. So then, then Patterson applied for a job as a nighttime warehouse worker at a liquor distributor and went to this interview, I take it. And apparently under the skills section, he wrote, quote, I'm an honest and hardworking guy, not much work experience, but I show up to work and I'm a quick learner, end quote. That's not true. He he worked for one day at Jenny O's Turkey Company, which is where Jamie's parents worked. They have no reason to believe that their paths crossed during that time. And he found himself in Barron, Wisconsin, because he worked at a cheese factory in town and I think was either driving to or from his employment when he was behind the school bus, which Jamie occupied. So that lasted for two days. So this guy, that's a kind of a risk factor in anyone when they're seemingly incapable of holding a job. Not much work experience, but I show up for work. (laughs) No, you don't. So I got an idea. Our buddy Chris Duet could possibly write this guy a letter in prison and we could get a correspondence going. So uh, that would be awesome. Wouldn't that be something else? He has quite a way. He does have a way to make (laughs) murderers communicate with him. Yeah, check out Chris Duet in uh, an episode called Writing with Killers that we did a while back. It is on the feed, uh, on the podcast feed. So... um, Jamie then decided she was not going to be there anymore. So the, this guy Patterson said he was going to he's going out for a couple hours and Jamie pushed everything aside and ran out the door into a snowy landscape wearing only pajamas and her captor's sneakers on the wrong feet. And that's when she ran into Jean Nutter who was walking her dog and uh spotted Jamie Kloss without a coat or gloves. And she ran up to her. And that's the story as we know it now. That's, that's where it stands now. Yeah. Yeah. Nutter was a former uh, child protective worker. She was a professional social worker for many years before she retired. So I was saying this before to Lance, uh, short of a police officer, I think it's um, she couldn't have run into a better person to help her and get her away from that situation. So uh, Nama says, Chloe, girl, you know your stuff. Ooh, thanks, Nama. <laughs> Okay, so uh, any other comments on Twitter? We are, are uh, wrapping things up here on this Facebook Live vault. Thanks, everyone, for for joining in, and uh, we love the comments. And we're going to try to do this regularly, and uh, we're going to try to do it uh, in February on uh, President's Day since this is a, uh, a holiday, of course, Martin Luther King Day, that uh, Chloe has off from her normal job. So that's why she is here in person today. Yep, just a couple more people joined on Twitter. Uh, Truck Stop Twank and Melody2015. So thanks for checking in on Twitter. Uh, next time, hopefully the Twitter thing will be better. Even the way you read their comments, Twitter, get your, get your shit together here. You have to scroll and then it disappears when you, <laughs> when you take your finger off of it. It's yeah, insane. Still working out the bugs here on the live show, but uh, this audio will make the podcast feed on Wednesday. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And uh, we really appreciate the correspondence as well. And, you know, check out SuitcaseJaneDoe.com and uh, Jennifer Amell's work into that case. Okay, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you.